get to our study in Romans chapter 2. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. But before we get to Romans, I wanted to mention just a little praise report that Arcadia Valley Chapel has been a church for two years now. Uh, we started in March of 2013, started at Bobby Powell's. Um, God's provided all along the way. Uh, Parkland Chapel actually expected to have to, to help us with rent and all that kind of stuff. And every, every week through the little box in the back, God's provided more than we've needed. We've actually even been able to start supporting a missionary in uh, Thailand, Bangkok, Thailand, uh, Lance Smith. Uh, we also support the Parkland, uh, Parkland Pregnancy Resource Center in Park Hills. Um, they give uh, free ultrasounds and stuff to, to moms that either teen pregnancies or at-risk pregnancies. And um, they basically give them an ultrasound in the hopes that they will keep the baby. And then while they keep coming to the Pregnancy Resource Center, if they'll go through parenting classes and do things like that, they, tell, they teach them about Jesus. They, do, uh, uh, they give the dads uh, Bible studies on... Um, you know, how to be a parent, and they try to share Jesus with them. And as they come to those things, um, they actually give them diapers and supplies to raise their kids. And so it's a neat opportunity for us to share the gospel and meet a practical need in our area. And so we support the Parkland Pregnancy Resource Center. We also support the Arcadia Valley Ministerial Alliance, who is a group down here that uh, give out food to the needy. And uh, so we've got a ministry here that we support in our uh, Jerusalem. We've got a ministry in Samaria in Parkland Pregnancy Resource Center and then to the outermost reach of the world in Bangkok, Thailand where the, a church is being planted there. And so God is not only blessing us internally but we're able to be a blessing to other ministries. It's not all about us. And so God's been really faithful and uh, we've been going for two years. So Kelly and I are blessed to be a part of it and to see just God do what he does when people are faithful. And it's not just because Kelly and I are faithful. You guys all have been faithful in your giving of your time and of your talents. And, uh, and so, uh, anyway, hope that blesses you. Because to me, two and a half years ago when the Lord said, uh, you're going to go start a church in Ironton, I was like, oh my goodness. And then he provided a building. And then he's paid the rent. And then he provided groups to paint the place and build walls. And, and there's still lots of things that he wants to go do. God's not a God of the past. He's a God of right now, and so we're just praying, Lord, what do you have for this next season? And so we're looking forward to what he has for us. So uh, anyway, I just wanted to share that this morning. It's a huge blessing uh, to be able to be a part of God's work. So turn to Romans chapter 2. And as we've begun our study in Romans um, just a few weeks ago, uh, Paul is writing to a group of Romans who are in a church in Rome that Paul's never been to. And his heart for them is to encourage them not only to walk in their faith, but to know all the things that he would have told them had he had the opportunity to go to them in Rome. He's never been there, and what he doesn't know is three years from the time that he wrote this letter, he's going to go to Rome. He's going to be able to talk to them personally. He's going to be able to meet them and, and hear the stories of God's faithfulness. And so Paul, before he's able to go there, since he's not found a way in the will of God to go there, he says, you know what? I can go there without going there. I can write a letter. And so he writes a letter to them to, to, to explain to them the basic tenets of the Christian faith. And he shares with them a lot of truths really from the Old Testament that will pertain to their life of following Jesus Christ. 
So as he's getting ready to share the gospel with them, he doesn't start by, you know, basically just talking about Jesus dying and being buried and then resurrecting. He, he doesn't start with that. Because in order to need, know that you need a savior, you have to first know that you're a sinner, that you have a need. You know, have you ever tried to give something to somebody that didn't know that they needed it? I mean, parents do that all the time. They try to share wisdom with their children and their children basically, you know, it's like casting pearls before swine. They're like, what are these things? And they try to chew on them and then they spit them out, leave them on the ground in the mud. And, and people do that. We try to share with them, hey, you need a savior. You need Jesus Christ to be your Lord. And they're like, I'm fine. Everything in my life is going great. Why do I need something else to do during my week? Why do I need to give up time on my Sunday or on my Wednesday? Why do I need to read the Bible? What's that have to do with me? And so Paul doesn't start by talking about salvation. He starts by talking about, number one, his own reception of what God's given him. But then he starts to talk about the wrath of God being revealed against all unrighteousness. And then he talks about what unrighteousness is. And he, so he addresses three different groups of people. He addresses what we would call your garden variety heathen, uh, people who are living a life of sin, going about being driven by their lusts and their passions and their wants and their desires, who are just kind of groping through this life blindly but feel like they got it all together. And then he addresses a group that I would call the hypocrite, the person who is um, a law to themselves. You know, they're not religious, um, but they do have convictions about, about morality. And so because they have convictions about, about morality, they make up their own set of rules. You're good if you do this, and you're bad if you do that. And, and we all kind of have those ideas, and sometimes they're, they're ideas that though they are well-meaning ideas, they're not ideas that are found in Scripture. And so we follow them, and then we try to put them on other people, and if they don't do them, then they don't measure up in our sight. And so Paul addresses the obvious uh, person that's just, uh, whether a murderer or a fornicator or uh, someone that steals, someone that would go to jail for you know, things that they get caught for. And then he talks about those who are hypocrites. They, they see the people that are obviously breaking laws and they go, man, I'm glad I'm not a part of that group. But what they realize is as Paul expounds upon these truths, he says, that person that judges everybody else, do they think that they're going to escape the judgment of God? You know, you can make up your own rules, but if you don't follow God's rules, you're ultimately going to be judged, is what he said. So Paul continues on this same path, revealing that the wrath of God will be revealed against all unrighteousness according to his standard. And so Paul addresses these two groups, and then he addresses a religious group, a group who had the very word of God revealed to them by God himself through Moses on the mount of where the law was given, the Ten Commandments. And so he addresses them because the, in Rome, there's this kind of a plethora of people. There's people that have never been to, you know, Jewish church. You know, there's people who have been a little bit and think that they're good because they've been to church. And then there's a group that they follow to the nth degree, every rule, every precept, and that's what they think makes them righteous. Now, I want to say that before I even start this morning, the group that I feel like I fit is the third group, the religious Jew, the one who knows the law, who reads the Bible, who has been baptized, 
who tries to do all the right things, and yet when God looks at me, He doesn't give me favor because I've done all the right things. He gives me favor because of the blood of Jesus Christ applied to my life, because I trust Him. And so, in Romans 2, verse 17, He says to these, this group here, He says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law. You make your boast in God, and you know His will. You approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, So he says there, you who have the law, who boast in God, and are taught by the the law, that's good. You, You are listening to what your teachers are teaching you. But he says to them that you see yourselves, you're confident in yourself that you're a guide to the blind, that you're someone that has something to offer to someone else, that you're an instructor of the foolish. Now, that's not a bad thing. There are people who know less than you do. Everybody kind of has an insecurity. Well, I don't, I don't know much about the Bible. How am I supposed to tell anybody else anything? I haven't got it all down yet. Well, each one of us knows a little bit more than somebody in our lives. And while we may not have it all together, we can instruct others. That's what God's called us to do, to share the light that we do know about. And so that's not a bad thing. But then he goes on. He says, you have the form of knowledge and you have the truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, who have been taught by God, you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? See, sometimes we get a little bit of a word from God or we learn something from Him and so we start to practice it. And then we start to teach others. But sometimes we learn something, we receive the knowledge, it never really impacts the way that we live, But before we ever put it to practice, we try to teach somebody else. And when we do that, we we become a hypocrite. And so he's saying to this group, it's good that you want to trust God and that you're learning from Him and that your life is changing, but make sure that your life changes. Don't try to instruct people in things that you don't quite understand. Don't try to instruct other people in things that you haven't put to practice yourself. Because when you do that, you're, you're, you're not representing God rightly. You're being a hypocrite. And I love this because we see in Matthew chapter 7 a story about a guy who had a little sin problem. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. And I don't know many of you in here that probably have never heard this quoted or quoted it yourself. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So what Jesus is saying there is, don't judge others, because you're going to be judged too. Deal with your own sin first. And he's going to expound upon this. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye. Can you imagine this? Imagine an eye surgeon. 
you got some problems, he's going to do a little LASIK on you. He's going to get that laser out. He's going to put it into your eye and do whatever they do. I don't know about you guys, but the thought of getting LASIK scares me to death because I like seeing. And lasers seem to burn things. So I'm like, I don't know. That, to me, that's a step of faith to let some guy shine a laser in your eye and fix it. You know, like, I think it can only get worse. That's just me, though. But as I think about that, imagine if the surgeon comes in, and right before they put you under, I don't know if they put you under or not, he comes in and he's got this big old tent stake, like a wooden tent stake, sticking out of his eye. Now, obviously, that wouldn't happen, because hopefully an eye surgeon would have dealt with his own eye problem. But sometimes, as Christians, we try to deal with other people's obvious character flaws and sins. And we all have them. And when you hang out with more Christians and you're around them more often, what you're going to find out is not that everyone's better than you thought. You're going to find out more and more that every one of us has a flaw that we're blind to. And so imagine if you're laying down on the table, they're getting ready to do LASIK, LASIK and the surgeon comes in, he's got a big tent stake sticking out of his eye. He goes, okay, trust me, I'm going to take care of this thing. Well, if you're the surgeon and if you're looking out at the person you're going to do surgery on, you've got a tent peg sticking out of your eye, what can you see as that surgeon? The only thing you can see is a big piece of wood, if you can see it all, if your eye even works. And so what the Lord tells him here is he says, he tells him something, I'm sure. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, the plank is in your own eye. You can't see. You're blind yourself and you want to heal somebody else's blindness. That's a problem, right? And so we always think about this and we go, don't judge others at all. But that's not what Jesus is saying. You can easily misinterpret that. What he says there in verse five is he says, number one, you're a hypocrite. Own up to it. You, are, you say you're one thing and you're another. You're, you say you're an eye surgeon, but your eye is blocked. You can't even heal yourself. Don't be a hypocrite. But then he continues. It doesn't stop there. He says, step one, verse five, first remove the plank from your own eye. Remove the plank. Deal with the sin in your life. And then number two, this is the part that people don't ever realize. It says, and then you will see clearly in order to remove the speck from your brother's eye. God's desire is that each one of us would have the sin removed from our lives. And sometimes we're so blind to it that we can't be our own fix. When you've got an eye problem, you can't do surgery on it. When you've got a, a gallbladder that's inflamed, you can't do surgery on yourself. You need someone else to come in and be a part of that healing that surgery is going to remove the problem and then the body is going to heal itself. So, number one, we have to be willing to admit, hey, I got an eye problem. And number two, we got to have people around us that can help us with it. And so, Jesus here teaches that sometimes we have to deal with our own sins so that we can help others deal with theirs. And I'll tell you what, if you're an eye surgeon and you've had an eye surgery and you know the pain afterwards and you know how hard it is to deal with, when you go to do eye surgery on somebody else, you're going to be pretty stinking compassionate. You're going to deal with them gently. You're going to be super careful, knowing that the results can be bad, and that you've had to be in that spot yourself before. 
So God uses you and I as a minister of reconciliation. He uses I, you and I to do surgery on one another. We rub against each other. The body of Christ or the, the temple of God is built up of people who are, what Peter writes, living stones. And when you put a bunch of stones together in a building, if there's one you know, imperfection in between one of the stones and they start to slide them together, those imperfections or those little things sticking out get knocked off. And when stuff gets knocked off of us, it hurts. But when it gets knocked off, we fit better together. And we become this building that doesn't have cracks. It's sealed in between by the Holy Spirit. And so what the Lord wants to do is he wants to grow us from glory to glory, to perfect us, to purify our lives. And he uses us, each other, to do that. Turn to Psalm chapter 51. And we'll see an example of this. In Psalm chapter 51, David has fallen in sin. He's committed adultery with another man's wife. In order to cover his sin, he's had the, uh, the wife's, or his, this lady he's committed adultery with, he has her husband killed in battle. And then after that, he's acted like everything's fine. He takes the woman to be his wife. There's a child on the way. He looks like he's the hero. He's going to come in and rescue this widow. And so he covers up his sin in the hopes that he won't be found out. He can just move on with life and forget it. Chalk it up to experience. I messed up. But at the end of this, a year later or so, God sends Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet tells him a parable and reveals to him, hey, you think you did this thing and that no one knows, but your sin is known by God. And God's calling you out on it. You need to deal with it. He wants to heal you. And so David, finally, he repents of his sin. He softens his heart to the Lord. And in Psalm 51, he writes down his feelings, the things that were going on inside of him during this time. This is a worship song. And so in Psalm 51, he cries out, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Don't give me the punishment that I deserve. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin. He recognized sin has stained me. Cleanse me of it, Lord. And then he says this, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin, it's always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done this evil thing in your sight? He recognized, number one, he acknowledged his sin. And number two, he acknowledged that nothing can be done where God doesn't see it. We can't hide ourselves from him. So he says there, I've done this thing and this evil thing in your sight that you may be found just when you speak against me and blameless when you judge. A lot of people go, well, if God judges me, he doesn't have anything to get me on. But when he really recognized his sin for what it was, and he realized that God saw it, he said, if God judges me, he's totally just. I deserve it. He's confessing. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know 
wisdom. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. And then he says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He recognizes that sin separates us from God. And because our sin separates us from God, we need to be cleansed of it. We need our iniquities to be taken from us. In order for us to be right with God, God doesn't just have to like rehab our heart. He has to destroy our heart and give us a new one. And so this has happened with David. And then he says in verse 12, he says, restore me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation, Lord, and uphold me by your generous spirit. I think sometimes we think about salvation, we think about us. We think, Lord, restore me to the joy of my salvation. But salvation is not something that you and I can do for ourselves. We can't do enough good works. We can't uh, say enough amens. We can't pray enough. We can't read enough. We can't justify enough or even act like enough didn't happen. God has to save us. He's the only one that can reveal our sin to us. He's the only one who can cleanse us. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation, Lord, and uphold me by your generous spirit. And then notice the response to God restoring him. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Transgressors are people who know better and do it anyway. They know God's word. They know what his, his teaching is. They know what it takes to follow him in an upright heart and they refuse to do it. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways, Lord. And then he says, and sinners shall be converted to you. Sinners are those who have not been saved. So he's talking about transgressors who know better. And then he talks about sinners who don't know any better. He says, both of those groups, because I've received your mercy, I'll be able to show it to them. You can't take anyone where you've never been yourself. If you've not been saved by Jesus, if you haven't experienced the grace of God, you can't show it to others. It's that simple. So my point is David recognized that and his worship became this. If you deal with my sin, if you bring me through this thing, if you bear my burden on the cross and I experience your love and I've given a new heart, I'm changed from the inside out, I can show others to go that same way. How do I deal with my sin? Go to Jesus. It's that simple. How does that look? Well, here's how it looked for me. I had to confess my sin. I had to believe that he could forgive me. I had to receive forgiveness and salvation. And now I'm walking in newness of life. And now every day, I still sin. But God gives me the opportunity to come to him boldly, to his throne of grace, and say, Lord, I've sinned again, forgive me. Not to get hard to it, but to continually let him purge us of sin. So back in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. This is what Jesus said about righteousness. He said, I say to you that unless your righteousness 
exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And to the group that he was talking to, the most holy guys, the most godly guys in all of Israel that they saw were the scribes and the Pharisees. And so in their mind, they're saying, if the scribes and the Pharisees won't make it, how am I going to make it? And then he tells them the, the righteousness of God is not like the righteousness that you see in the people around you. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, verse 21, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. In another passage, he says, whoever hates his brother in his heart shall be guilty of murder. And then he goes on in verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So that's the point. God's not looking to make you look good on the outside. He's looking to change your heart and he knows that when he changes your heart, what you do on the outside will change. People always say things and then they throw on the end, just kidding. You know, they'll say it in the heat of the moment and then they'll say, just joking. But Jesus said, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So what you can say just joking, but the Lord knows whether you were or not. Now, sometimes we are. So I'm not saying that, you know, but the Lord, he wants to get to the heart of the matter. And Jeremiah says, our hearts are deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know them? And the answer is God can. And God's the only one that will judge us according to the deeds that we've done in this life. So he continues back there in Romans, in verse 21, he says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? The things that you're teaching, do they not have an impact on you? He says, You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Now, we think of stealing, what do we think of? You know, I went out and robbed a bank. What about paper clips from work? You know? What about stuff that nobody knows about? You know, maybe you didn't even mean to. It's still sin in the eyes of God. He says, you who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now remember the verses we just read. Not outwardly, what about inwardly? He says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? In other words, you who claim to be Christian, do you actually follow? What, do you actually live out what you believe? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter fifty-two, verse five, where Isaiah had told the nation of Israel, "Because of your living out what you actually believe versus what you say that you are. You say you're God's people. You say you're of the circumcision. You're boasting, hey, God chose us. But your lives don't look like it. You're not God's people. Maybe on the outside, but not on the inside. Your hearts are proving, your outward actions are proving what's going on in your hearts. And so he goes to say this here in verse 25. He says, for circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. Now, you and I, we're in a culture where they, we practice circumcision. It's not a religious thing for most people. It's something we do because it's, it's healthy for the body. Uh, there's all kinds of health problems when you don't 
circumcise a male child. We won't get into that. It's awkward for me. It's awkward for you. Don't need any diagrams. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, maybe ask somebody older than you. Not me. <laughs> he says circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. In the Old Testament, circumcision was an outward thing that they did to their male child on the eighth day. And it proved, or it showed, we're dedicating our child to the Lord. Now, we dedicate our children. We don't necessarily do it on the eighth day. But as Christians, many people will come up to the front. They'll have the pastor pray for the child. They'll dedicate them to the Lord. And that's just saying, Lord, this child is one you gave us. And we're going to teach him to follow you. We're dedicating them to you. Does that mean that the child will follow them? Not necessarily. Does circumcision mean that the child that was circumcised is always going to follow God? Not necessarily. That's the hope. In the nation of Israel, they were to circumcise their children as a remembrance thing. We're set apart for God. And so, <clears throat> it, circumcision is profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It doesn't mean anything. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, if a Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even when your written code and, uh, and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. And then he kind of surmises this. It kind of gets, it's almost like we're reading a legal document. It gets very technical in his language. But then he kind of sums it up in verse 28. He says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So what he's saying is if you fulfill this outward sign and you don't follow the rest of the law, then your circumcision is pointless. If you say I'm in your flesh through the circumcision, I'm God's person, and you don't follow the law inwardly, then you may as well just avoid the whole circumcision thing. It doesn't account for anything. Now, we don't have a whole context for that. What do we do in the Christian church? We baptize. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. We're symbolizing, we're showing to the world, I'm God's. But if you get baptized and then you don't follow the Lord at all with your life, what it proves is what's actually true about you. You're not a child of God any more than somebody else that got dunked in the water just because they were jumping in. You got a dirty bath. You're not cleansed. The water doesn't do anything to you. All it does is it's a symbol. When you're lowered underneath the water, you're symbolizing, you're telling the world, this old life that I was living, I've given it up. It's passed away. It is no more. And when you're raised up, you're dead. You're dead to that old life. When you're raised up out of the water, it's symbolizing, I'm a fresh creation. I'm a new creation in Christ. I no longer live that way. I'm following Jesus. But if we do that and our life doesn't change, we just took a dirty bath. It doesn't avail us anything. 
It doesn't save us. It doesn't actually wash anything, especially if you get baptized where we typically get baptized, which is in some dirty lake or a river. All you did was you got dunked. So what he's saying is that God's looking for an inward change. And these Jewish people were trying to prove, they were saying, hey, 12 years ago when I went to camp, I got saved. I, I went up front, I was crying, I got baptized. And God's saying, that doesn't mean anything if you don't have a heart that wants to obey me. And so <clears throat> I got a couple passages that I read this week. Passages I had never seen before. Leviticus chapter 26. I know you guys have all been really enjoying Leviticus as of late. Everybody wants to know about sacrificing animals and cutting off the fatty lobe and burning certain parts and throwing other parts outside the camp. And, you know, that's like what we, we love that. The only thing I like about Leviticus is when they're burning these sacrifices to God. I wonder if it smelled like Herschel's house when we go over and he's smoking meat. You know, like barbecue. Oh, man. You know. That's, I wonder if the Lord's just, he loves the smell of barbecue. So he's like, hey, let's burn some animals. You know, like, hey. <laughs> and he, notice also, if, I don't know if you guys have been reading the chronological still, and I hope you are. It's really been blessing me this year. And sometimes some of, all of God's word is inspiring. It's inspired by God. But not all of us is, is as inspiring as others. And we're just about, I think we're almost done with Deuteronomy and we'll get into the battles in Joshua. So if you've lost track, you've backed away, you haven't been keeping up, take a mulligan. Start on the day that it is today. Start fresh. Don't be condemned. Just uh, move ahead from where you're at. <clears throat> Leviticus 26, verse 14. He told the nation of Israel this after he gave him his law. He says, but if you do not obey me, and you do not observe all the commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but you break my covenant, I will do this to you. I will appoint terror over you, wasting disease, fever which shall consume the eyes, cause so sorrow of heart, and you shall sow seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And then all the things that God promised to do them if they would trust him, he basically says, I won't do those anymore. I'll take my protection off of you. I'll let the enemies that surround you, I'll let them take you over and even take you as captives to their land. I'll let the beasts of the field consume you. Everything that I was protecting you from, I'll take that away from you so that you will repent. So then zoom ahead to verse 37 of the same chapter. And he's still continuing all the, all the curses of not following God. He says, They shall stumble over one another as if it were before a sword when no one's pursuing them. And you shall have no power to stand before your enemies. You shall perish among the nations. The land of your enemies shall eat you up. And those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. Also in their father's iniquities which are with them, they shall waste away. So he's pronounced all these curses. And I think sometimes we read all these curses and we stop there and we're like, that's depressing. So if I don't do everything just right, God's not going to bless me. 
That stinks. But the nation of Israel had forgotten that. And so they hardened their hearts towards God and they were experiencing the separation from him. But notice in verse 40, it says, but, and I always like buts in scripture, not the B-U-T-T, but the B-U-T, because it's a contrast. He says, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and that they also have walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled, and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, I will remember them, I will remember the land. So God's pronounced all this cursing on them. And then he pronounces a blessing on them. He doesn't say, if you sin, I will forsake you completely. He says, if you sin, I will take my protection away from you. I will no longer shield you from the judgment and the wrath that comes from your sins. But if you will confess, if you'll be real with me, he says, then I will remember my promises to you. I'll come back, I'll bring the blessing. And then I will remember the land, I'll heal it. I'll heal you, I'll heal your land, I'll provide for you. All those things that I promised to you, they come back. See, the Old Testament was based on God's people following the commandments of God. But what justifies you and I? Is it uh, making sacrifices of animals? Is it doing good works? Doing more good than I do bad? Is it um, acting like everything's fine when it's really not? Putting on the game face on Sunday or whenever your day is? Is it about that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul, being the writer there, he writes to the Ephesian church, to the churches in Asia Minor, and he tells them how they were saved. Ephesians 2, verse 8. Really, um, if you are one who takes the liberty to write in your Bible, you should un underline uh, Ephesians 8 through 10. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, but it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any one of you should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God has already prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, that we should step into them. And then he says, in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the Jews, or by the ones called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at the time that you were without Christ, you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from all the promises of God, having no hope and without God in the world. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by your works. No, he doesn't say that. You've been brought near by everything. You got it all together. No, he doesn't say that. He says, the thing that has brought you near to God, though you were once completely separated from him, is the blood of Christ. 
He says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you were separated, dead in your trespasses and sins, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So back in Romans, as he talks to these Jewish people, he says to them, Your boast is in the law, but the law can't save you. Your boast is in that you have your own rules that you always follow, your morality. That can't save you either. To the people in Romans chapter 1 in the second half, your boast is that you didn't know any better, so you were just sinning. Well, your sins and trespasses will still, they'll take you to hell, whether you feel like you know enough or not. So what he's done is he's taken the, the word of God and he said, Everyone, the wrath of God against all unrighteousness will be revealed. All unrighteousness. Not known unrighteousness, not religious unrighteousness. Everybody that sins will be separated from God. And so the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, whether it's self-righteousness or whether it's another rule. So my point is, is that the one thing that can bring us close to the Lord is the blood of Christ. It's the only thing that we can trust in. It's the only thing that can save us. So why would we try to trust in anything else? We do though, right? We get in these little funks. And, and I say that because over the last couple of weeks, I realized how legalistic I am, how much a Pharisee I am. You know, I, I'll judge other people based on what I feel like I need to do to be saved. But the only thing that saves us is the blood of Christ. Not works not saying all the right things, not wearing the right things, not going the right places. But when God changes our hearts, and it's no longer about the outward, but we're like, Lord, I confess to you, I've got sin in my life, and I need it removed. I need you to change me. When we give him our heart, our heart converts our mind to make better decisions, and then our mind leads our body to follow suit. Sometimes we want to deal with the symptoms and God says, I want to deal with the roots. So we need the Lord to change our hearts. We're incurably religious. We're incurably trying to prove ourselves to God. And the only thing we can prove to Him is that we can't measure up. So I hope that frees you this morning. It did me this week. God's shown me all the ways that I'm trying to prove myself to Him. He says, you know what? Jesus was the one in whom I was well pleased. Hear Him. Follow him. He is my righteousness. And I offered him to you. Do you want him or do you want your righteousness? And when in comparison, his is the only righteousness that's going to save me. So Father, you've revealed the things in your word that your wrath will be revealed against. And I hate to stop there because the truth is that we're going to come to the point where Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous. And so, Lord, because your word says that, I believe it to be true. And there are days where I feel like I do better, and so I feel like I'm righteous. But your word says that it's not true, that it's a lie, that I, I can't be righteous on my own. So, Lord, help us in the days where we feel like we're doing pretty good to realize we still need you just as much as we did on the day where we felt like we failed. Lord, change our hearts. Help us to be real with you. Help us to be honest about our sin. Help us to ask you, Lord, I can't change. Please change me. 
And as you do that, Lord, I pray that others would see our real relationship with you and that they wouldn't be pushed away by our legalism, but they'd be brought near seeing that we started as hurting units and that we're getting by by the grace of God. And Lord, may they see that that's offered to them as well. John three seventeen says that Christ didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him they might be saved. So Lord, help us to just be a picture of that. We are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So we love you for changing us. We love you for saving us. And we just pray that as we sing this last song, Lord, change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing one more song.